Well, earlier this year, I received the dreaded letter from a collection agency informing me that I owed a large amount of money to a particular credit card company. This agency was coming after me, was threatening to impact my credit score, among other things. Now, even though I did not spend the money there, nor did I even take out this credit card from this particular credit card company, the bill was still under my name. And they were arguing that I owed uh, this money. Now, long story short, I was uh, a victim of identity theft uh, earlier in 2020, right before COVID hit. And so uh, 2020 is probably going to be a year I never forget. Um, But all that to say, um, everything has been sorted out. But through this experience, I've learned the dangers of identity theft. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, every two seconds, uh, someone becomes a new uh, a victim of identity theft. I don't know if you knew this, but 33% of Americans uh, have experienced identity theft on some level. And for me, what happened was someone hacked into my personal email, stole personal information from me, and they sold that on the mysterious dark web. Someone bought this, they claimed to be the real Chris Beals, and they took out a credit card in my name. Now, through this whole experience, I have thought about my identity in ways that I don't regularly think about my identity. I usually think about my identity as a follower of Jesus, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, right? That's, that's who I think that I am. But from the, the, the position of, of the bankers and the creditors, the way that they think about Chris Beals is my you know, credit score, my social security number, my address, things that I don't normally understand about my identity. And part of the problem is that for them, they did not know who the real Chris Beals was. They knew he was out there, but there was someone else, you know, trying to be him as well. And this whole experience has really made me think about what is, who, uh, what is my identity and who am I actually? See, part of the problem is I did not fully protect uh, my identity, and it led to weeks and weeks of headache and frustration. Look, I want to talk to you about something today and next week that is far more dangerous, far more destructive than the identity issues that I went through a few months ago. I want to talk to you about something today and next week about the dangers of spiritual identity issues. See, Paul is writing to this church in Colossae who had their own identity issues. Paul's writing to this church in Colossae where they have this group of false teachers who were trying to convince others that they were the real Christians, and they weren't. They they were stealing the identity of a Christian, and it was causing all kinds of problems. See, for one, what these false teachers were trying to do is they were trying to uproot the identity of the real Colossian believers from being grounded in Christ. And it was leading to all kinds of problems. For one, it was leading these Colossian believers to misunderstand their identity in Christ, which led to confusion. It led them to being swept away by whatever was current and popular in their day. Look, I want you to know this morning that you and I, we face the exact same danger. That when we misunderstand or when we have a a superficial understanding of who we are in Christ, it leads to not only confusion, 
but it can make us vulnerable to being swept away by whatever is current and popular in our day. And so this morning and next week, I want us to look at what does Paul have to say about identity issues? What does he do for the the church here in Colossae, and how can he help us today as we think about who we are in Christ? Well, Paul does two things uh, in, in this passage. Number one, he provides a strong warning in verse 8, and secondly, in verses 9 through 15, he provides a helpful solution. So let's begin with number one here. The, the warning here in verse 8 that Paul gives here is to think about your thinking. If you look at the beginning of verse 8 with me, we see the, the warning from Paul loud and clear. He uses this phrase, and he says, see to it. Now, this phrase literally could be translated to be careful, to be on guard, to be on the lookout. All right, so this is not a, a soft warning from Paul, as when I, as a parent, see my daughters who are doing a craft, and they whip out a pair of scissors, and I say, hey, girls, be careful, right? It's kind of a soft warning. This is a strong warning from Paul as when my daughters take that pair of scissors and they start running around the house with them, right? It's a different kind of warning, and that's the strong warning that Paul is providing here. Now, this warning here from Paul is to be careful, to be on guard, to be on the lookout for certain kinds of philosophies, systems of thoughts, ideologies, ways of thinking that would lead to misunderstanding and uprooting your identity in Jesus. That's important because of the context. See, the verses right before verse 8 and verse 6 and 7, if you look at them, Paul has just commanded us not just to receive Jesus, not just to believe in Jesus, but to walk in Jesus to root yourself in Jesus, to build yourself up in Jesus, and to establish yourself in the faith in Jesus. In other words, Paul has just got done saying, root your identity, everything about you, in Jesus Christ. So Paul's warning here in verse 8, in the context here, is Paul is saying, look, you need to be very careful about these philosophies, these mindsets, these systems of thoughts because they can be a kind of soil for you to root your identity in that can be destructive, that there are real intellectual threats to your faith, and and they're not always announced, right? They they don't walk around with a big uh, poster that says, believe in this, this will shipwreck your faith. No, they are much more subtle, aren't they? They they kind of uh, propose things, and they package things as half truths that, that sweep us away. See, if I, could, if I could summarize this warning by Paul, it, it would be this. It'd be to think about your thinking. Think about your thinking. Think about what you allow your mind to consume. And maybe more specifically here, and we'll unpack this this morning, is I think Paul's warning here is to be very careful about, about what kind of knowledge you allow to move into a conviction in your life. It's because when knowledge becomes a conviction for you, it actually forms an identity that you live out of and make decisions from. 
Now, Paul here is not saying that all kinds of thinking is wrong. He's not against all kinds of philosophies. He's not against every ideology. Of course not. Uh, But here, Paul provides five descriptors uh, of ways of thinking or philosophies that we need to be on guard against. Okay, so let me briefly describe these. Number one, the first descriptor is to be on guard against philosophies that are powerful, that are powerful. I'm getting this from verse 8 where he talks about philosophies that can take you captive. Now, this phrase here means to be carried off. This is a phrase that was used uh, for prisoners uh, when a victorious army would come and they would, they would carry the prisoners off. They would take them captive with a death-like grip. Paul is saying here, be on guard, be on the lookout for ways of thinking, ideologies that suck you in and are so deceitful that they, they lead you to grounding your identity in them and not in Christ. And I think the captivity piece comes in with certain philosophies that we're aware of in this world that lead you uh, to, to viewing everything through that lens of that philosophy and not the lens of the gospel. So the captivity piece is that it leads you to viewing everything through the lens of that philosophy and not through the word of God. We need to be careful of those kinds of philosophies. Secondly, though, another descriptor by Paul is that they uh, be, be aware of philosophies with empty deceit. Empty deceit. Now, some translations have this as hollow or vain, and it means to be devoid of spiritual value. And this is where the deceit piece uh, comes in, because on the outside, these philosophies look as if they're providing a solution or an explanation to a particular issue, but the more that you press into it, the more that you realize there's not much there, or the more that you press into it, the more that you see that it's, it's detached from the transforming power of the gospel. We need to be aware of those. Thirdly here, Paul describes philosophies that are according to human tradition. According to human tradition, this reminds me of the, the critique that Jesus provided uh, against the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 where he says, you are following the traditions of man and not the word of God. And so the philosophies here that Paul is warning us about are the kinds of philosophies that ground themselves in man's wisdom and not the word of God. It's the kind of philosophies where their chief question that they're trying to answer is, does this work rather than, is this true? Right? So we need to be aware of those kinds of philosophies. Fourthly here, another descriptor is that they are according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this is a a difficult uh, phrase to kind of translate and understand, but at the very least, it means uh, philosophies that provide principles and values of this world that lead us to living as if this life is all that there is, right? Certain philosophies that convince us that there's no heaven, there's no hell, there are no consequences to how we live in this life. Uh, you probably have been familiar with the, the popular phrase over the last several years, YOLO, uh, Y-O-L-O, you only live once, right? That's a type of philosophy rooted in the elemental spirits of this world. That, that hey, you only live once, so live it up. Build your kingdom here because there are no consequences uh, in heaven or hell. Fifthly, the last descriptor here that Paul provides is that these philosophies are not according 
to Christ. Or the, the TNIV translate this as, does not depend on Christ. And so really, this phrase is summing up the root issue of what Paul is afraid of, is that the Colossian believers were being swept away by these philosophies, these systems of thought, these ideologies that were disconnected from the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And we know what what the Colossians were struggling with here. As we've noted before, they were being swept away by the Colossian heresy, that Colossian heresy that was declaring Jesus is fine, but he's not enough. You can have Jesus, but, but you need to add to Jesus. And so for the Colossian believers, they were saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need to follow rules. You need to believe in legalism. Jesus is fine, but you also need to practice extreme self-denial, which was asceticism. Okay, Jesus is fine, but for the Colossian heresy, they're saying you also need to worship some angels, which is a type of mysticism. All right, so you have all these isms, which are a kind of philosophy that for the Colossian believers here, they were being tempted to being swept away by them and hijacking their identity in Jesus. Now, the thing that's dangerous about these isms or about these philosophies is that they don't just provide a lens by which you see life. They provide an identity that we live out of and we make decisions from. And the reality is, is that these isms have not gone away. And we struggle with those uh, same isms, the legalism, the the, the mysticism, and, and the aestheticism, but we also struggle with other kinds of isms today. Let me provide you three that I think that are real threats to us today in 2020 that we need to be careful of. Number one, I think we need to be careful of materialism. Materialism, this is the mindset that, can, that considers material possessions and comfort as more important than spiritual development. All right, so it's not just that physical possessions are gifts from God, used to bless others, used to give praise to God, but these physical possessions provide a type of satisfaction and an identity that that should only be reserved for Jesus. And so that house and those clothes and that car and that money and that job uh, do things to our heart uh, that, that should only be reserved for Jesus. We need to be on guard against that. Another example of an ism today is individualism. This is really popular in our culture. Individualism perceives everything through the lens of how it impacts me, that it values self-autonomy above all. So there's no accountability to others, to to community, to small group, to even uh, the church, that all I need is the Bible and the Spirit of God, and I'm good, which makes Uh, following the 59 one another commands, really, really challenging. Thirdly, though, another common philosophy we need to be careful of is pluralism. Pluralism. Pluralism takes uh, two or more values, two or more uh, beliefs or opinions, and gives them equal authority in your life, equal weight. Okay, So, so you care about what Jesus says about you, but just important is what other people say about you. Right? You care what the Bible has to say, but with equal authority and equal weight, 
Uh, I'm going to listen to my favorite news channel or, or, or the latest book that I've read or, or an article that I've seen on the internet. They both have the equal authority and equal weight. Now, there, there are many other kinds of philosophies we need to be careful of, of course, but the, the issue here and the warning is that the, these philosophies are not neutral. And of course, Paul is not against uh, thinking and, and reading and being exposed to differing opinions and differing philosophies. Of course not. The warning that Paul is providing here is when these unbiblical ways of thinking become convictions in our lives, because when they're convictions, they can take us captive because they form identities that we live out of. For example, materialism is not just a viewpoint on how to view your stuff. Materialism offers you the identity that I am what I own. I am what I have, what my possessions are. You think about individualism. It forms the identity of I am who I say I am. I have the authority to define myself, not what the Bible has to say, not what other people say. Pluralism, it's I am and you take two other things and that's who you are. But look, we can certainly have other ways of thinking, other philosophies that want to try to define us. Think about our past, our past sin and our past mistakes. Those are not just things that have been covered by the blood of Jesus, but we can allow our past mistakes to define us in the present, that I am those sins, I am those mistakes. We can even have our accomplishments, our successes, our achievements, that I am those things. Those things define me. We can even allow our political positions to define us, that for any type of issue, we don't go to the Word of God, but we see through it by whatever our political affiliation or our political position would say. And we need to be on guard against these. There are many more, but here's the danger. Hannah Anderson, her book, um, uh, Made for More, uh, I think pinpoints the danger so well. She says that every time we look for knowledge about ourselves from something other than God, we perpetuate the cycle of self-destruction. As we continue to live divorced from our true identity in God, we lose a sense of who we are. And as we lose a sense of who we are, we continue to live divorced from our true identity. And we end up struggling, grasping, flailing to find something, anything that will give us a stable sense of self. Look, that's the issue there. And, and even as believers, we can get tripped up with, with trying to sync up our positional identity in Jesus where we are hidden in him, we are covered by his righteousness, we are accepted and unconditionally loved, that we can get tripped up sinking that with our functional identity, how we live day in and day out, and it's because we don't think about our thinking as nearly as we ought to. We don't challenge our presuppositions and, and what we're allowing our minds to consume. That metaphorically speaking, when it comes to our thinking, we are standing in water, but we don't quite realize what color it is and how it's impacting the way that we live. I want to show you an image here that uh, came across a few months ago. This is called the Wisdom Pyramid. 
It's by Brett McCracken. He's coming out with a book in early 2020 or 2021 on the Wisdom Pyramid. And what he does here is he categorizes ways that we consume knowledge into different food groups, right? And he proposes how much weight and authority that we should give uh, these different food groups. And his argument here is that we are so inundated with information all of the time that we might have knowledge, but we lack wisdom. That we might have a ton of information, but we lack biblical clarity and biblical conviction. And the reason why we have this wisdom crisis is because we look at these different categories and we give them equal weight and equal authority. And so what I read in the Bible has the same kind of authority as the latest article that I've read on the internet or what I've seen on social media. Or we can flip this pyramid upside down and the Bible is no longer my foundation. The Bible is no longer the filter by which I process information, but it's the latest book that I've read or or the latest tweet that I've seen on, on Twitter, whatever the case may be. And we have this wisdom crisis. And when you, when you have a wisdom crisis, you're going to have an identity crisis of not knowing who you are in Jesus. So this is the warning that Paul is laying before us to think about our thinking. What's the solution? What, is, what does Paul propose here in verses 9 through 15? Well, the solution that he proposes is to embrace and to live out your identity in Christ. Okay, we're going to take a deeper dive into this next week, but let me give you a preview of where we're headed. See, this wisdom crisis and this identity crisis is caused because of a misunderstanding or a superficial understanding of who we are in Christ that leads to not really knowing how to live out our identity in Jesus. Okay, let me give you an example. In chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 2 and 3, Paul has just got done saying that in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, that, that's, that's Christ right there. So if you are a Christian, you are in Jesus, which means that you have full access to wisdom and knowledge. The question is, if that's who you are in Jesus, Are you living a life out of your identity with Jesus with wisdom and with knowledge? And if there's a gap there, then there's a misunderstanding of who you are in Jesus. See, this is where we're going to go. I want you to notice this unbelievable connection in verses 9 and 10. This is so powerful and so informative when you think about your identity. Verse 9, Paul says, For in him Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, what Paul means here is that all that God is dwells in Christ. So Jesus is not just God-like, but he is fully divine. So there's this complete union between God and Jesus that's not just ontological, but it is full in identity, all right? Then move to verse 10 here. Paul says that you have been filled with that same Christ. That the Jesus who is full of deity, you have been filled in that same Jesus. It's an unbelievable connection and so helpful when we think about our identity. Now, identity in Christ has been Paul's theme in Colossians. 
This is a major, major thing. Paul ha- has talked about who we are in Jesus, trying to define who we are in Jesus, trying to unpack what it means to be united in Jesus. And he uses that phrase, in Christ and in him, over 10 different times in these four chapters. But, but I want you to, to take this idea in verse 9 and connect it to verse 10, that Christ, who is full of deity, fills us. Now, what does that mean? Well, even though that Christ can hold the fullness of deity since he is God, you and I cannot. We, we can't be filled with the fullness of deity like Christ or else we would also be divine. But Paul does say that we're filled with something here. What are we filled with? Paul says in verse 10 that you have been filled in him, meaning that Jesus is living inside of you. That means that God is in you, that the manifestation of God's presence is in your life. So God is with you. God goes before you. God is all around you. God goes before you in all things, and he's fighting your battles. But not only do you have the presence of God, because you are in Christ You have all of the spiritual blessings at your disposal. Everything that Jesus is, because you are hidden in Christ, they are yours because of your union with him. And so what that means is because you are in Christ, you have his wisdom. You have his love. You have his comfort and his power. You have everything that you need for life and godliness because of who you are in Christ. I love how uh, Kent Hughes uh, describes this. He says that our capacity to contain the fullness of God is an interesting thought. There are no limits to possible capacity of the presence of God. We can always open to hold more and more of God's fullness. The walls of our lives can always stretch further. The roof of our lives can always rise higher. The floor of our lives can always hold more. That the more we receive his fullness, the more that we can receive. So look, to be filled in Christ, it, it's not as if you're taking a cup of your life and, and, and you're taking a pitcher and you're just filling it up. No, what Paul is saying here is you're taking the cup of your life and it's being engulfed in the ocean. That's what it means to be filled with the presence of Christ. And do you see the contrast here? The contrast is fullness of Jesus compared to the empty deceit of philosophy. What is Paul doing here? What Paul is doing is he is trying to convince the Colossian believers that Jesus is better, that that he's better. He's better than any philosophy. He's better than individualism. He's better than materialism. He's better than legalism. He's better than anything that this world has to offer. And he's showing us that because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, and that same Christ is filling up your life today. But here's the question. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you to be filled with the fullness of Christ? Or is there a part of you that's saying, yeah, I, I like Jesus, I like to be filled with him, but, but man, I sure do like some of these other things. I sure do want to be filled with, with these possessions and these relationships and, and, the, and my money and my job and, and this particular sin. I, I like Jesus, 
but I want these other things to bring satisfaction and my identity. See, that's the real issue before us. The real issue and what maybe some of you are feeling right now is, is almost this identity crisis where you know your positional identity in Jesus, but your functional identity in Jesus is not sinking up. And so for you, you're struggling to maybe live out who you are in Jesus. And yet God has made available everything that we need in Jesus. And I just wonder if, if there was such a thing as a spiritual x-ray, and you had a spiritual x-ray of your life, I wonder what it would reveal. Like, What are you truly filled up with? Is it Jesus? Is it the fullness of Christ and all of these blessings? Or is it Jesus and some of these other things? And I just wonder if we are struggling with just the modern-day Colossian heresy, where we say, yeah, Jesus is fine, but he's not enough. And we kind of have filled in the blank with our 2020 version of it. And I just wonder if Jesus is feeling crowded. Well, if that's true, next week we're going to address what to do about that. But let me tee it up for us. Okay, let me, let me share a quote by A.W. Tozer. This is where we're headed. He says this. He says, before we can be filled with the Spirit, the desire to be filled must be all-consuming. It must be, for the time, the biggest thing in the life, so acute, so intrusive as to crowd out everything else. That the degree of fullness in any life accords perfectly with the intensity of true desire. We have as much of God as we actually want. See, God has made the fullness of Christ available to us, and we can have as much of God as we want. We'll talk next week about what that means. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that in him we lack nothing, that he fulfills all of our desires, that he's not only saved us from our sin, he's not only purchased our freedom, but he creates an identity for us to live out of. And so, God, I pray, Lord, as we wrestle with how to sync up who we are in Jesus with how we live day in and day out, God, would you give us courage? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us, Lord, humility to, to open ourselves up to maybe areas that are inconsistent? And, God, we need your word to guide us in that process. And we pray in Jesus' name.